Operator Syndrome, episode 48. 48, closing in on 50. Magical number 50. Nothing will happen at 50, I don't think. Um, but uh, it'll be uh, nice to hit that marker. Uh, today we're talking about, we're actually getting back into some book reviews here coming up, I think. So for today and um, the next episode following this, I think we're going to be talking about War uh, by Sebastian Younger, right? Is that the name? Correct. And uh, maybe weaving in there uh, the, the the documentary um, Restrepo, which uh, aligns with the book well. And um, Steve, what's that other? What's Tim Hetherington's? Yeah, it's it's called Infidel. It's taken from a tattoo a lot of the guys got on their chest. Um, and it it's a pictorial. It's uh, Hetherington is a photojournalist, and he went through. It's it's really worth the price just for these photos of these guys. Um, and one 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 gentleman, Elliot Alcantara, who Patrick went through. Do you do you go through Ranger School with him? Yeah, we were stuck in the gulag together. Yeah. Oh right. Okay. He seems like a colorful character, but but a badass, you know. Yeah. Definitely. Like all Rangers. <laughs> That's right. That's true. Um, yeah. So we're going to be doing that uh, now, and then uh, we'll be doing another book review here in a second. But we'll talk about that next time. So I'm going to cut it to Steve, and and Steve, uh, your you know your thoughts on War and Restrepo. Uh, what are your initial impressions? You know, from your perspective. Yeah. Well, it's a great book. I read it, I think, around 2010, 11, when it came out. Um, and I reread it just last couple of weeks, just because I wanted it to be fresh. And I knew we were going to be talking about it. I loved it for a lot of reasons. Well, I loved it. I, I loved part of it. And I hated part of it. Not it, that it wasn't well written, but, of, you know, the suffering that the, these guys went through, which we'll get into. Um, <clears throat> so, um, it was written by Sebastian Younger. He was also well known for um, a book which became a movie called The Perfect Storm. He he's a journalist. He's he, I think he's freelance, but he was working for Vanity Fair and National Geographic, um, who were underwriting his project uh, that was that this book was the result of, alongside a British a photo journalist named Tim Hetherington, who did the filming. Um, and man, those guys, they they got shot at. <laughs> they were embedded with those guys. And I mean, the footage is pretty hairy, some of it. I mean, they're right there taking rounds. They didn't, they were unarmed, um, but they, I mean, they had body armor. But yeah, so um, the book, uh, the book, I, I was thinking about how would I class this book? It was almost a case study, almost like um, mm. What 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 uh, anthropologists call an ethnography, where you go in and live with people and you just observe and 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 ask questions if if you speak the language, which he did obviously, and um, get to know the conditions and the lifestyle of these people, and so on a broad level, I I think it's a great deep dive into one particular unit, uh, which we'll talk about, and I just preface it by saying this gets into a lot of what Patrick and I kind of have an eye toward with operator syndrome um to, to start with the guys that we'll talk about um the 173rd uh airborne uh brigade well they're part part of the airborne brigade 173rd airborne brigade and and this particular company called battle company uh was um w was the group of of men uh serving there <clears throat> now um I just want to say I looked up again today. It, it does look like we're starting to 
go down in veteran suicides a little bit. Not it's we're not by any means where I think, you know, anybody would hope to be, but um, there's still something like 17 suicides per day uh, of veterans. Um, and, and a lot of that is based on what these guys saw. I thought I might read this portion from the very end of the book, and then we can backpedal into their situation. And sometimes I think it's it's interesting to just look look at what came out and of, of how messed up these guys are. Now, I want to just say this, man, um, I salute all of these soldiers. They are phenomenal heroes. And they took more combat than most special ops that I've uh, operators that I've ever known. I mean, they they're the firefights are so intense and sometimes multiple firefights every day. Right. So, and we'll get into the scenario and the context, but they were exposed to so much and lost guys. They had, they had heavy casualties. Um, uh, the movie Restrepo is, is named after um, one of their medics, Juan Restrepo, who was killed. And um, it was, it was about an outpost that they had to secure on the high ground overlooking the cop where um, the headquarters element was for battle company um, because they were taking fire almost every day from these different angles uh, up in these mountains. So, um, so they named it Restrepo after Juan Restrepo um, who was killed and, and a really beloved larger than life guy that everybody loved and just a, just a great guy. So, the 173rd, uh, as I understand, um, kind of their their garrison headquarters is in uh, Vicenza, Italy. Uh, that's where they're, they're, they're stationed. And then, of course, they, they deployed over to uh, the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan. But after they got back, after all of this was over, <clears throat> there's um, a couple blurbs I wanted to read. One about just how messed up these guys were. And these are some of the toughest guys you can – they're tough as nails. They don't get any tougher. Right. And it said the toughest guys in the platoon, but this is back when they're back in Italy, the toughest guys in the platoon find themselves crying every day and the more vulnerable guys skirt the edge of sanity. It's even bothering me. Bobby confides to me over dinner and nothing bothers me. Can you imagine what it's doing to some of the other guys? Um, and I, I thought, you know, so that just shows their psychological condition after having so much intense combat. It's what it's the product of combat. I mean, love it or hate it, it it's what it does. It's just there's no way around it. So there's one another a colorful character named O'Byrne, and he comes from a really he's a tough dude. He comes from a really rough family background. His dad actually shot him. Um, and, That's right. Yeah, he was he he was in and out of jail, um, but the army kind of turned his life around. And, and, and so anyway, this talks about O'Byrne and the insanity of a military bureaucracy, which just makes you want to shoot yourself. He said, he finally shows up the next day and Navala drives him around the base, trying to take care of his paperwork. I tag along to see what happens. O'Byrne refers to the base as coward's land because it's a place where guys who have never done anything but fill out paperwork can boss around guys who have actually fought for their country. A whole new set of rules apply that seem almost deliberately punitive of the traits that make for a good combat soldier. We park in front of something called the transition office and O'Byrne says, come in and watch, watch. this is going to be good. He's in a catch-22 where his military ID is going to expire in a couple days. So then he's going to be in this weird limbo where he can't 
he can't get a flight home and he can't get on base. He, he's stuck, right? There's a middle-aged um, lady behind the desk who seems perfectly nice. O'Byrne takes a mint out of a jar on her desk and gives her one of gives her one and explains that his paperwork is late and his ID expires in two days. By then, he's supposed to be on a plane home. She says, the only acceptable reason for not being on that plane is if you're in jail, the woman says. And if you're not on that plane, you'll be arrested and put in jail. <laughs> O'Byrne maintains his composure. So what should I do, he asks. Call your commanding officer, the woman says, and ask him to have you arrested. That way you won't be breaking the rules when you don't get on the plane. If she understands the irony at work here, it doesn't. she doesn't betray it. Let me get this right, O'Byrne says. You want me to get arrested now so I won't get arrested later? That's right, the woman says, and returns to her paperwork. We get up to go, and O'Byrne turns to me as we walk out the door. See, he says, see why I hate the army? <laughs> I thought it's humorous, but it's also kind of tragic at the same time. It, yeah, <laughs> it is catch 22. I think I've said that before yeah, on this, this catch thing, 20, yeah. but, uh, and, and not just the, the idea, it is a catch 22, right. In the, in the sense, but also the uh, just absurdity of military logic. Yeah. Like just the way things work in that book, uh, catch 22. I remember liking it as a, as a, you know, just a teenager reading it in high school, but as an adult rereading it, you know, it's just like, wow. It, at the time you thought when I was in high school, I thought, this is funny. It, this this is funny, tragic, like you said, but also um, can't really be like that, right? Like maybe it was a caricature, but but no, you reread it after you've been in the military. And you're like, no, it's exactly like the people can't comprehend how much like this it, it actually is. Um, yeah, it's wild. It, it's insane. You see it on so many levels. We <laughs> when we were in the Gulf War, we we were, we did we did some swimming in across the beach and. Um, one of the secondary weapons I would choose to carry is a stainless 357 Magnum revolver because they don't jam. I mean, you still got to make sure there's not sand in them, but it's really a lot simpler mechanism than an auto, uh, semi-automatic pistol. Um, and um, they only issued us 38 special ammo because that's all the supply chain would, 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 you couldn't order any 357 Magnum, which is a lot more powerful than 38 for those who may not know. And so we we bought our own civilian uh, 357 Magnum. It was some really high performance bullets because that's what you want. And uh, it was us all. We always would ask our, our lieutenant, well, "Why can't we get this ammo?" And he goes, "It's just not in the supply system." We're just like, "This is really crazy." So stuff like that that you're like, "Well, if you feel like you can't even do your job that they're asking you to do," and a lot of times it's. It is the case, but um, yeah, so it, it's it's one of those things you pull your hair out, and if, you know, for these poor guys, it just, like I said, utter heroes, just being shot at and wounded, and yeah, just a nightmare, and we'll, we'll get into some of that, that, you know, for them to have, some, one of them was, yeah, some, some, um, some military person who was not a combatant person at all was, was, screaming at one of them to sit properly in his chair like after they they're getting they got back and they were in a chow hall or something but just stuff like that so this is the story war of um about a year of this group 173rd airborne um 
hats off to you guys, an elite unit. Um, a lot of them went on to back to Ranger Regiment, uh, I found out in a follow-up film. And there is a follow-up film called Korengal, um, which which is a, a part two to Restrepo. <clears throat> but uh, they were uh, situated in a valley in Afghanistan called the Korengal Valley. It was um, it is the single most dangerous and difficult uh, part of Afghanistan. Uh, I was looking up some history on it and... Um, the Russians back in the late late 70s, early 80s, couldn't get do anything in there and got went, went, went home with their tails between their legs because it was just it's always just been a hotbed of, of, of militancy. Um, older back in that day, when I was in high school, it was the Mujahideen, but they were the same stock of people, very hardy, very poor, um, very but capable fighters. I mean no joke fighters um hard men so um they were sent to this valley it's in kunar province which is um is northeastern afghanistan almost to pakistan pakistan's like one ridge over seriously so it's it's like right right in this weird area a lot of arms going back and forth from pakistan to afghanistan and and so forth and um also of note i i made a note to myself that um one one valley over from the Korangal is where um, a four-man SEAL uh, recon team was obliterated. Um, they made a movie about it, which won't get into that, but it, it 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 was the result of a book called Lone Survivor, Marcus Luttrell, the one out of the four who, who, who made it home. Um, and um, they got dropped in to get this guy Ahmed uh, Ahmad Shah who who is a terrorist um al-Qaeda member and uh, he had he had killed a bunch of US forces and um found out that th it, it was a setup from the start um basically the movie paints it kind of differently um that this these random uh goat herds just stumbled across these guys well they knew, they sent those goat herds out on recons every day and, and they they'd have radios with them. The guy had a radio with him, and um, but be, they don't send them out armed because we can't shoot if they're armed because of the laws of armed conflict. Anyway, that that became that led to uh, the downing of of a CH forty seven QRF trying to come in and rescue him, which killed everybody on board, uh, all the army crew, um, the Night Stalker crew, and uh, and and a whole seal. I believe it was a it was at least a squad might have been a platoon um, trying to rescue these guys that were getting shot to pieces. And there were several hundred Taliban versus four guys. So you look back on it and it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I just say that because some people might cross reference that that was known as operation red wings. Um, it, it was a Navy, mostly Navy operation. Well, Navy army, or it was a joint operation because of the platforms. So anyway, very, very, nasty area of fighting um very committed combat troops and the life of these guys who now battle companies the larger group but this one platoon went up into um i think it was second platoon went up onto this um hill to try to build this uh outpost called restrepo and they took most of the most severe fighting like day in and day out so i guess i'll give some breathing room to Patrick here. 
I, I, no, that's it. And, and it's, it's about their experiences there. And I think, um, you know, what the book does so well is to capture the, the human perspective, you know? Um, yeah. Because these, these guys were in a really tough position. Uh, I don't envy what they had to do. Uh, I mean, they, they were put in the worst valley in Afghanistan uh, and put into some of the worst positions, like geographic positions possible, and they just had to sit there and take it. You yeah. know, that's, that's what they were doing there. Um, they, you know, it was from reading the book and watching Restrepo, they they did do offensive operations, but you know they spent a lot of time just defending themselves. You know, and they built out these cops and OPs, and you can't move that stuff easily, right? No. So so they know so the enemy knows exactly where you are, you know, and they can try different things, and they can just and um, you know one of the things I remember picking up on when I was as I was rereading it was just the harassment right yeah. so it they don't have to they didn't the enemy didn't need to full-on attack the op or the cop it just you know just needed to harass it a little bit and it costs the enemy nothing to do um, basically usually nothing to do that yeah. but for the psyche of the the paratroopers you know hunkered down i that, that was a that's a big effect and so it's uh and knowing how Afghanistan turned out in the end makes it even harder to read and watch, you know, what we put those guys through. Um, so, yeah, again, hats off to them. I wouldn't want to do it. You, you couldn't. I mean, that was for, for us, for me. That was what they went through. That was the punishment, hmm. right? It's like, hey, do you want to get kicked out? and sent on a 15-month deployment to sit in an OP and just get, you know, drilled by enemy fire constantly. It's like, no, no, I really don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I wouldn't want to be that person. I, I, same way I wouldn't want to be, you know, in a convoy in Baghdad, you know, running, you know, running supplies. Like, I, I'd prefer to be offensive. I prefer to work when we have advantages. That's what I want to do, you know. And so these guys, and, and I met, and, and I've got nothing but respect for those those guys. You mentioned one guy. I was in the gulag with him. He was a nice guy. Great tattoos. Yeah. Um, uh, and actually, and I can't remember his name, but um, uh, one of the PLs, I don't know what platoon leaders, the officer mm -hmm. in charge of the platoon, um, one of them was in my squad, was in the squad that I graduated with. Um, I couldn't remember his name, still can't, but I remember seeing him um, uh, in, in the movie Restrepo. I was like, holy shit, that dude was in my squad, and he was a nice guy. Yeah. And, and actually, um, these, this happened right after we graduated. So these poor guys got through, made it through ranger school, and then this was their next deployment. This was their, like, their follow-up deployment. I, I don't know how soon afterwards it was, um, like, did they did did they catch that whole deployment? Did they meet halfway? I'm not quite sure how that worked, but um, that's rough. Yeah, that's rough to think about. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's also insane. I mean, this the troops are heroes. 
the big leaders and their policy planning and the politics of it all, I'm I'm very leery of. Um, you know, I I just you're you're putting our putting our men in an unwinnable situation. Like literally, we pulled we pulled out of there. I mean, well, we pulled out of all Afghanistan, obviously, but mm-hmm. it, you know that does tremendous moral injury to soldiers who've watched some of their best friends and brothers get killed right beside them. They've got to live with now. Why, you know, and, and why am I so screwed up for the rest of my life? I can't sleep. I'm on meds. I, you know, you name it. I can't count how many of them said they couldn't sleep anymore. They they were just having real trouble sleeping. Or if they did sleep, it would, they'd wake up in a cold sweat and a firefight. <laughs> I mean, what they experienced was the closest thing we had in modern times to like trench warfare, yeah. right? So they're in cops and OPs, they're yeah. they're dug in and they're just, you know, just taking fire constantly. Yeah. Um, it's the closest thing they had to like World War One style until the, the Ukraine invasion where there was like yeah. literal trench warfare and, and all the kinds of crazy stuff that came about with that. But for Americans, that, that's like the closest thing. And I've always said, if there was one war that I definitely wouldn't, have, if you had to transport me to some other war, if there was one where I would like cross off the list, if I only got one choice, it would be World War One. That would be the one where I, I that would, that any other one, they don't, they all sucked, but that would be the one I definitely didn't want to get sent to. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, just saying, um, well, if you had more to say, I was going to go off and talk about the the kind of insanity of it because they're trying, they're they're they were trying in the valley, they're they were trying to convince these elders, these tribal elders, um, to uh, hey, hey, help work with us, give us information in return. We're going to give you humanitarian aid. We're going to improve the roads. We're going to make life better for you. But it uh, it was so many conflicts. Like, for example, they went out on this one operation called Rock Avalanche. And um, it was one of their worst losses of, of, of battle company. Um, they, they There was actually a worse situation with a, a group called Chosen Company um, who, who were further up the valley. They, they got they got torn apart, lost e- even more. But um their goal is to go in and in this in this area where they're going there was an offensive patrol um through uh i wouldn't even call it a village just these houses built on the sides of hills it, it, it and um they knew they knew they were going to this area and and captain kearney who was uh the commander of of, of the company said he said no shit when we cross this one grid line we take fire every time we get ambushed and they were supposed to push into that area to try to keep keep the Taliban fighters on their heels. Um, and um, they were going through this town and, and they called in, uh, I, I don't know if it was warthogs or Apaches, but they were call, called in um, some gunships, ended up killing, I think, one or two civilians and, and hurting a, a, a number of, of children. I mean, clearly not combatants. And the elders were just like, what do you want us to do? There's no cooperation at all. And they call one of the elders said called for a full-on jihad because of the civilian casualties. So it's just like I'm just kind of probably my head going, What on earth, man? You talk about setting guys up for failure. Um, makes my blood boil for for the soldiers. Um, 
but anyway, yeah, an impossible mission, really. Yeah, um, sent there to try to provide security so that way we could, you know, like you said, improve the lives of the people there. The people there didn't want their lives improved, at least not by us uh, or, or, or by the way the coalition forces would have liked to have improved their lives. So what do you do? I guess you just hang these guys out in the meat grinder uh, until the people relent to be safe, to be said to be saved. <laughs> you know, hey, how else how, how else can how else can you interpret it? Um, you know, it, it was. Uh, it, you know, it's it's tough. It's a lot to ask of, you know, paratroopers, you know, infantrymen, you know, that's not really their job. That's not what we train for. You know, that's but um, but they performed, you know, very admirably. I, what One thing I was going to say was, um, you know, you, you mentioned some of the guys who went to the Ranger Regiment afterward. Well, Osland, uh, I think he's Lieutenant Colonel Osland in that I think he got out as a colonel. Um, he was actually uh, he was actually an enlisted ranger back in the day. He's like an old school enlisted ranger guy, uh-huh. um, and he's one of the guys that came back. I was still in the regiment when these guys came over. So Oslin came over, and I think he came over as deputy regimental commander. So we have like our RCO regimental commanding officer who's in charge of the regiment, the three ranger battalions at the time, uh-huh. um, and I think Oslin became was the deputy then. Um, I don't know if he had, he must have had like company platoon or company or battalion command in the regiment before, because I think I mentioned this before officers have to go back out into the conventional army and then come back in. So whatever job they're going to do in whatever job they're going to do most of the time. And again, back in my day, but the jobs that they want to do in the regiment, they have to have done it somewhere else first. And more often than not, where these officers go are to the airborne units, just because that kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. So, so our officers, you know, a brand new PL, well, first they got to be a PL, and they're probably a PL in the 82nd or the 173rd, right? So right. PL's there, they do time, they perform well, then they go to the selection, they get selected, and then they become a PL in, uh, in the Rangers, the regiment. Um, and they're always like one rank up. So like a usual, like a PL is like a lieutenant, um, but our PLs at our time were always captains. Kearney was doing his company command at the 173rd there during this time. And then he came over to third bat um, and he was, he was like A or C co. He didn't come to B co, um, A or C co. But I remember when he was, he was major Kearney then, mm-hmm. and he was a company commander in, in the battalion I was in. And so um, in terms of the enlisted guys, I don't know how, I don't know how many if any i i would honestly be surprised if any enlisted guys uh came over to the ranger regiment after that um but for the officers absolutely they would have done their time and came over especially since now when i read the book i was like oh there's a connection there right so oslin brought his boy kearney over let me let me rephrase that i'm sure kearney more than earned his spot more than earned his spot but it doesn't hurt when right you you got connections (laughs) it doesn't hurt which is a very army thing. The army is very small. That those type of connections, it the army is is really known for that. Um, so it helps. Uh, and, and I and I never heard anything bad about Osland or Kearney. Um, yeah. But I was very surprised to see them because I had gotten out by the time I think most of this blew up. Um, so I was very surprised to see all these people that I knew. 
right. that you knew. Did yeah. you ever talk one-on-one with Kearney or do you just, he was around the area. I just saw Kearney. I mean, he's a busy guy. He's a company yeah. commander, you know, he's doing sure. his thing. I saw o- Oslin yelled at me in the gym once. Well, he didn't, <laughs> he, he didn't yell at me. So we were, we were overseas. My buddy and I, Jose were exercising and um, like, I don't remember what we were doing, but again, this comes back like to, to, to the Ranger and standards, right? So we're in our PTs and at least at the time, like we still tucked our t-shirt into our PTs, PT shorts. Well, whatever exercise we were doing, it was more convenient for us to be untucked for whatever <laughs> reason. Maybe, maybe it's just because the shirt would come untucked anyways or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so we were just minding our own business and I'm not throwing shade at Oslin. It's fine. But, yeah. but, but we've got our shirts untucked. We're minding our business for exercising. He comes over. He was actually, he, you know, he could have been an ass about it because that's sort of a ranger way. But he said, he said, hey, gentlemen, hey, let's make sure we tuck in those T-shirts. You know, let's, you know, let's be the leaders. You know, let's let's remember that people are watching us and we need to be the leaders, you know, and, and set the example. We were like, we were like, uh, yeah, Roger that, sir. And we tucked in our T-shirts and we kept going on. OK, so he's he but he's like an older he was an old school dude. And, and that's yeah. just the way it was. So, you know, I didn't I didn't have any heartburn about it. But but yeah, I did talk to Oslin. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> can Kearney yeah Kearney seemed like a tough dude I mean he watching him on patrol a little bit just some clips here and there from Restrepo uh but he he was no slot I mean he he was like let's go give it to these guys I mean he seemed like a a great leader in that sense I mean yeah I mean there's a guy given an impossible I mean we've just established an impossible mission mission impossible hey Kearney Take your company and try to make sense out of the deadliest valley in <laughs> Afghanistan. Right. Um, you know, like make these people who don't want our help accept our help and um, try to minimize casualties and, and try to be and try to be, by the way, oh, by the way, an infantry company commander and like kill the enemy, too. Right. You know, if, if we forgot about that part, like you're an infantry company commander. So, um, yeah, he seems like a guy who. I don't know. I, I can't say whether he did a good job or a bad job. But I'll definitely say that he was he had a tough mission, a lot of lot of stuff on his shoulders, and um, you know, you it's hard you, it's hard to to judge a person who's in a position like that because it's just him. He was the CEO. He was the company commander. He was the dude in charge. You know, and that's not that's relatively young, man. To to be extremely young. He was he had to have been. Yeah. He was mid twenties, right? At right. the max, a captain. Yeah, yeah. Like tw- he maybe he was like twenty six or something right. when maybe. he's in there. Yeah, he also had a sense of humor, although like a lot of combat uh, humor, it's it's dark humor. He was being asked by an elder. They they were they would have these meetings with these these tribal elders, and um, they were sitting there, and he this one uh, the interpreter told him, him this 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 afghan elder is asking him what ha- uh, why did why did you detain uh muhammad yusuf and he said who the fuck is that <laughs> and the interpreter said something and he he whispered uh, an advisor whispered in his ear he goes he just turned around to the elder and goes because i saw him cut two people's heads off he's like wanting one of their boys back and like that's the crazy thing i mean this is a brutal terrorist who's just doing the unimaginable 
um and and yet it's like well can we have him back and uh you know all this back and forth it's just like it's just like it's insane in some in some ways but uh he i could tell kearney <laughs> you def i mean he's definitely a guy who is he's uh you know his his cup of bullshit hath runneth over you know right. and like he's just you're just yeah. getting raw kearney you know yeah oh, just, it's just it's just raw you know he's doing his job he, he's trying his best and you're getting what you're getting you know yeah. so you definitely see that and you can understand that oh for, for sure yeah well the uh wow we're i was just looking at our time here um yeah, I was gonna maybe turn the page that some of the um um some of the well one thing we can talk about the firefights the uh what I what I sense from these guys and and the seriousness of the firefights they were in, like close proximity in some cases where I mean they could hear like in one of in Rock Avalanche, one of their ops, they um boy these guys were coming over real close trying to get a body um and and take it into into custody it was just a wonder they didn't get them um because they just had every disadvantage our guys had every disadvantage in this case but um those real intense firefights then also like patrick said being on their heels if they're out on if they're out on patrol they almost they're just thinking i pray i'd get through this um and they were always thinking, well, I'm I'm going to be the next guy. I'm going to be the next guy dead. How can you not think about it? Your your mind is like, well, and, and what I'm kind of rambling, but I'm, I'm going to come back here. One of the toughest guys, a sergeant, a staff sergeant named Rugel, um, was shot in the head and, and killed instantly. And a lot of them broke down. They lost lost their shit when that happened because he apparently... Like they said, he he was one of, if not the toughest fighter in that entire company. I mean, he was really hardened, real serious. I could tell by pictures of him before he was killed. He, he just he didn't have a lot of time for bullshit either. He he could see it on his face. He was ready to go, go get him. And so when he was killed, it was like it sets up this weird psychological trauma. Of, if one of the best toughest dudes just got waxed like that what chance do I have, you know, for a less experienced guy or a new guy or, or something like that. And, but those, those are, those are some pieces, but then being, you know, just being in a place that's really, I mean, there were places where because of the mountains, when they're at OP Restrepo, they could just lob rounds in on them from higher elevations and, and mortars sometimes occasionally. Um, so it was like, you could just be walking from, you know the pisser back to your your rack and boom could could conceivably be shot just walking across the the uh, op so um they were <clears throat> there was a he made a connection younger did with the, how guys with the climax the incredible climax and you could see it in a couple scenes there's this one particular scene in restrepo i think it I think it's good to watch both the, the the documentary Restrepo and read the book because a lot more content in the book, but you can really get a sense of the visceral tension in the air. Well, they had just got, it came under fire in, at Restrepo and they returned fire and actually did really well. I think it, they took a pe couple people out. I think um, 
the helicopters we called gunmetal uh that was the apaches they came in and were able to clear the situation and they they pretty much turned the tide and they were just really excited they were get high-fiving and giddy and like yo bro I, I can't believe that it was awesome and all this and it was this extreme climactic tension and then this 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 fall into and and it was right after one of those firefights they asked one of the guys i can't remember which one um they said so how are you going to adjust to civilian life after this and he just looked and he goes i have no idea because while it was horrifying on one level it was like extremely exhilarating and i've i've tasted a little bit of that nothing on like these guys had faced but where you it's it's an adrenaline rush that's the bottom line and um i've always said you know after jumping out of planes and free falling and spy rigs and i'm like i'm ruined for amusement parks they just i used to love them and i still kind of do but it's not nothing like some of the rushes you get well that's just an analogous way to say there i I don't know what the follow-up with was is with some of these guys but um i know um, he made the connection, Younger made the connection of how getting so used to that kind of um, high is going to be problematic in, in a lot of areas of trying to come back to normal life, um, especially in, you know, just sexual intimacy with a partner, like, because the extreme of that uh, adrenaline, they, they said it was it was like orgasmic. Uh, I think one of them used that term. Um, so I I don't know where I'm going with it all, but just just to see the the tension that results in some just the firefight life. Just how are they gonna how are they gonna reconnect with any kind of normalcy? I don't know. Yeah, I I think you know maybe uh, it's even due for a uh, like a follow up of some way somehow. You know, yeah. maybe that's something he's in. And I know he's put out some more books since then. Um, well, we're out of time here. We'll pick it back up. Um, in the next episode. So thanks for listening. We'll catch you in the next one.